So anyway, getting back to kickoff, be here in two weeks. Four different food trucks, all bounce houses, climbing walls, family event. Great opportunity. Listen now, great opportunity to invite somebody to church. Um, to experience what it would be like to maybe go to a church that's a little different than anyone they've ever been to before. Because also that day we're going to start a new series and we're going to be setting a little vision and uh, talking about our place in the community. So a uh, great opportunity to invite somebody. All right. After church, last Sunday, if you remember, Mike spoke, second service. I went up and I was helping out in children's ministry. And... Uh, Wow, those people are saints, especially outside. Um, it was hot last week. Drew Schoenmacher is, uh, is really doing an amazing thing with the kids outside during these Sunday fun days. After it was over, I had to change because I had sweat through everything I owned, and I hopped in my car and I drove off um, to uh, Indiana where my daughter Caroline goes to college because we were dropping her off at school for her junior year, which, I mean, I, I don't know how that's even possible, but <laughs> it goes so quick. Now, many of you have done this if you dropped your kids off uh, at, at college, and if the school is far away, you know how it goes, lump in the throat, the whole thing. Now, don't get me wrong, this isn't our freshman year. When we dropped her off for freshman year, she goes to school in Indiana. I'm not exaggerating, I couldn't talk again until we got back through Pennsylvania. Um, just couldn't, couldn't breathe, I was so upset about the whole thing. So it wasn't so much... I don't know, being upset this year, it was a little different. Uh, it was less emotional. I would say it was more worry than in the past. And not, not about Caroline. Um, if you know Caroline, she's a great kid in, in lots of ways, way mature beyond her years. It's just that college is hard. You all know that, right? It's a hard time of life. And what she's chosen to, to take on is, is very hard. She goes to a super competitive school. She's on a pre-med track, so she's majoring in biology. Then last year, she had some required theology classes that she had to take, and the dean of the theology school called her in and said, hey, you're really good at these classes. You should double major in theology and biology. So Caroline, never wanting to say no to anybody, goes, okay, I'll double major. So now she's pre-med, double major biology and theology. Um, she is a TA for at least one of our science classes. She has an on-campus job, and she's trying to, to run Division I track, which takes her out of town almost every weekend. It's really hard. Most of the reasons it's hard are the ones I listed, because Caroline has put a lot of pressure on herself. She made those choices. This week, though, uh, after I dropped her off, I began thinking about another pressure that's on her, which might be, in fact, thinking about it, I think, is bigger, deeper than the pressure she puts on herself. It's the collective we that put this pressure on her, and it's on you, and it's on me too. And for some of us, especially for some of our children, the pressure is just too much. It came to mind, um, you know, very vividly this week as I was helping move her stuff into the dorm. At the school she goes to, there's only single-sex dorms, so guys live with guys and girls live with girls. And I know when Caroline first went there, she was like, oh, you know, that stinks. But now she really likes it because she knows she can just walk out of her room and not care what she looks like because there's not going to be anybody there. You're only going to see other girls which is why I felt really bad on Monday when this poor girl who clearly went to the showers, assuming all she'd see on her way back to the room was other girls, walked out in her towel and slippers and found me standing in the hallway. It was probably more awkward for me than it was for the poor girl. I just kept looking down as if she wasn't there. Anyway, it got me thinking about my daughter and the pressure that's on her. 
that she has as she tries to navigate campus. See, in that dorm, it's pretty clear nobody really cares what you look like or how you appear. You could, to some extent, not as much as, as at home, but to some extent, you could be you. But go outside of the walls of that dorm, especially as a girl, and it's a very different story. It's almost the complete opposite. Outside of the walls of that dorm, it's almost all about what you wear and how you look. Now, every lady in the room knows that this is not just a college issue or a dorm issue. The average, I did some research on this, the average woman spends 55 minutes on her appearance every day, a figure that equates to two full weeks a year, a new study found. And, and these statistics, I looked them up in multiple places, so, so I think they're pretty good. Researchers found that the figure is almost double that of the male average. That's why we guys look the way we look. The survey, which polled, polled 2,000 adults and 200 teenagers, and after all that time and effort and money, right, which, by the way, on average, ladies, do you know how much money you're going to spend on your looks in your lifetime? Over a quarter of a million dollars the average woman spends on how she looks over her lifetime, right? It's amazing. And after all of that, right, all of the time and the effort and the money, 60% of adult women have negative thoughts about themselves at least once a week compared to 36% of men. I think that's just because we don't think that much. The level of self-criticism self spikes among teenage girls. 78% of female respondents aged 16 to 18 report having negative thoughts about their looks at least once a week. And 77% of women admit that they have said negative things about their own appearance to someone in the last month. And even greater, 80% of teens report saying the same things. And so I dropped my little girl off in that dorm, and it's a long drive home from there, about 10 hours. And I, I was thinking about her and the pressure she's under. Over, and over the course of the trip, I heard this haunting new song. It, it played. It's a long trip, so I heard it two or three times. It's a song by um, Nicole Gallion. Have you, any of you heard of this song? It literally, it literally choked me up. Here's how it goes. It's, I, it, I think it's called self-care. Here's what the opening lines say. I could go to the doctor and get needles in my face so whenever I smile, my forehead stays in place. I could eat a liquid diet so my bones start to pop and spend all my money being someone I'm not. I could risk the melanoma so I glow in the dark, do the kind of crud you can't quit once you start. I could bleach all the brown right out of my hair, buying clothes the internet told me to wear. I tried. I tried to hate me. I tried. I tried, but it got old. I think, I think, I think I like me. I think I'm finally sold. Maybe, maybe I'm lazy. Maybe deep down, I'm kind of scared to change what my mama gave me. I can't, I can't make myself care. I just heard that thinking about my daughter driving back. When I, when I was a little younger, and Courtney, um, Courtney's my oldest, she was probably, I don't know, 11 or 12 years old. I was watching a TV show in my bedroom, so I was laying on the bed. And when you lay on the bed, you can kind of see into, out the door and into the, the bathroom and the hallway. And Courtney was in there. And it was the first time in my life I'd ever seen her putting makeup on. She was a little girl, and she was getting ready to go out to something, I think school or something. And I, I had this um, repulsive feeling in me, like as I watched her like paint her face. And I remember thinking to myself, almost with the expletive in it. Like, who the heck told you you had to do that? 
why, why are you doing that? And, and then I got mad because the truth is I participate in making her believe that she has to do that. This week I became aware of a video um, by Dustin Hoffman. I, I wasn't aware of it. Uh, you remember, to you got to be old enough to remember this. I don't remember it. Somebody told me about it. Tootsie, that um, Steve was telling me about it earlier. Um, Tootsie was a pretty famous movie in the 80s, and Dustin Hoffman dressed up as a woman in the movie. And uh, he was describing uh, his role in this movie and how he really wanted to be, you know, perceived as a woman, not like somebody kind of dressing in drag. He really wanted to have the full experience. Here, here's a clip that I found this week of him talking about it. When we got to that point and looked at it on screen, I was shocked that I wasn't more attractive. And uh, I said, now you have me looking like a woman. Now make me a beautiful woman. Because I thought I should be beautiful. I, if I was going to be a woman, I would want to be as beautiful as possible. And they said to me, that's as good as it gets. Uh, that's as, as beautiful as we can get you, <laughs> Charlie. And it was at that moment that I had a, an epiphany. And I went home and started crying. Uh, talking to my wife, and I said, I have to make this picture, and she said, why? And I said, because I think I'm an interesting woman when I look at myself on screen, and I know that if I met myself at a party, I would never talk to her, that character because she doesn't fulfill physically the demands that we're brought up to think we have, that women have to have in order for us to ask them out. She says, what are you saying? And I said, there's a, too many interesting women. I have, I, have, I, I have not had the experience to know in this life because I have been brainwashed. And that was never a comedy for me. When I watched it, I, I remembered how I felt about watching Courtney in the mirror that day. That was never a comedy about me. That was never a comedy for me. Now, there's nothing new here. Jesus' disciple Peter, many of you have been around the church, you know, walk on water, Peter, I'll never deny you till I do it three times, Peter. Peter the rock on whom Jesus said he would build his church. Peter recognized that this is something that is built into us, into our broken nature. And so here's what he wrote. He said, do not let your adorning be external. The braiding of your hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or, or the clothing you wear... But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty, doesn't go away, of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. I want you all to remember that because we're going to circle back to it. Let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart. Now, here's the problem. While on one hand we have an obsession with looks, the root problem is not with looks, but with what it is that we look at. And that's why this is not a single sex problem. In many, but different ways, men find themselves under the exact same pressure. And here's why. Here's why men do. And the research on this is fascinating. Men are based, men too are judged, and their judgment is based on looks. 
just not the same looks as women. Women are judged mostly on their external beauty. Men are judged based on their external uh, perceived success. It's often said that men just care about looks for women, but it goes deeper. This is fascinating. According to the studies, that's true, men, men care about looks for women. For men, it's waistlines. For women, it's wallets. But according to a recent study in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology, no surprise here, men, more than women, rejected and reported less attraction towards potential mates with low physical attractiveness. That's what we would expect. Women, however, indicated similar aversion towards those with low social status. According to Professor Lee, the study's lead author, the scientists were clarifying how exactly men and women differ. That is, they prioritize different qualities when screening each woman, when screening each woman want men who are at least average in social status, while men want women who are at least moderately physically attractive, she said. If I'm a guy, I look at the woman next to me and go, aha, it's not just us. Sometimes a picture is worth a thousand words here, so I'm going to show you how this whole study can be summed up in the form of, a, of an image. Here's an early picture of Joan uh, and I when we were dating. Now, <laughs> clearly, Joan is not sitting around going, look at this stud I've landed, right? She's sitting around going, I'm going to have to grin and bear it because he's in an investment banking training program. She's not, but it goes to the point of the study, right? Thank God, Joan, Joan was looking past looks. Joke's on her, though. The investment banking thing went in the can, and she got a pastor. <laughs> so it all went wrong. Now, here's what's even more ironic, okay? You keep peeling the layers of this obsessed agenda onion back. Do you know why it is that men like attractive women? Well, according to the Good Men Project, men aren't just, just sexually attracted to good-looking women. They're also, and all too frequently, attracted to what beautiful women can do for their status. The desire for the approval of others shapes their sexual desire. Think of the very reasonable claims of many men that they're not attracted to size zero skin and bone supermodels. Lots of guys claim with, with great sincerity, right, that they love women with curves. So why are men so interested in dating skinny supermodels? The answer is, of course, that a great many men care as much about what others think of their girlfriends and wives as they do about their own desires. Does anybody catch the irony of what's happening here? Women feel the need to be beautiful because men will judge them by their beauty. And men feel the need to be with beautiful women because it gives them the status they need in order to be judged fairly by women. And everybody's obsessed and miserable. Turn to the man or woman on your left and say, this is all your fault. <laughs> it's all your fault. This is why I do what I do. But God, but God, God looks at something else. Remember, the problem here is not all about looks. The problem is, is all about what we're looking at. Remember what Peter said? He said, let your adorning be the, be the hidden person of the heart. He's saying, look, you're adorning, you're worrying about, you're working on the wrong thing. You're concerned about looks. He's literally saying, 
Take the heart, that word adorning there means to make it more attractive. Make your heart more attractive. Not your face, not your waist, not your wallet. Make your, make your heart more attractive. It's your heart. Now, the, the history of Israel is replete with stories about this. In the history of Israel, it was King Saul was their first king. And because of disobedience to God, he was rejected by God. That message of his rejection by God was delivered to him by the Old Testament prophet Samuel, to whom God had revealed the message. Well, on the heels of that revelation comes to Samuel another powerful revelation. But this one, I think it's to people like you and I. One we need to hear in regards to our shared obsession with looks and status. You see, after he delivered his message to King Saul, God comes to him again. And the Lord said to Samuel, how long are you going to mourn for Saul since I've rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I've chosen one of his sons to be king. Now in the Hebrew, what that actually says is, I see, God looks, I see myself a king amongst Jesse's sons. God looks and he sees something. He looks at Jesse's sons with his eyes and he, he sees a king. And so Samuel goes looking for that king and he comes and, and Jesse begins to parade before Samuel his sons one by one. And of course, who would he start with but, but his oldest son, right? The firstborn son. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eli, Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. So Samuel comes, in comes the firstborn son, right? And he looks at him, and, and Samuel sees the way he's been culturally trained. He looks at Eliab, well, with God's eyes, but with the eyes of his culture. And he says, well, here he is. He's the firstborn. He must be the anointed one. He sees him, and he sees that he's, he's big and strong and strapping. We'll see that in a second. He looks at the size of the guy, right? And he goes, well, this has got to be the guy. I mean, look at the size of this guy. And in those days, the size of the king mattered. It was a prim primitive time. The, the king was the one that led the people into battle. You wanted him to inspire fear on the front lines just by his presence. In those days, it was height and might. Funny, funny thing is, thousands of years later, in some ways, we remain just as primitive. Actually, I, here's the truth. I think in our culture, I think we're going backwards. I think we're more primitive than they were. Neil Poston is an NYU professor. In his book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, he writes about the election between Stephen Douglas and Abraham Lincoln in 19, or excuse me, 1858. You, if you have gone to school, you've probably heard at some point about the famous Lincoln-Douglas debates. The reason you heard about them, even 150 years later, is that the transcripts of those debates were distributed around the country. Their words, the ideas, uh, the philosophies of Lincoln and Davis, they were distributed all over and to everyone. You know what wasn't distributed to anybody? Their images. Postman points out that even at the height of that campaign, if Douglas or Lincoln had walked down the street of almost any town in America, no more than 4 to 5% of the people would have recognized who they were. Why? Because at the time, photographic images were not easily conveyed. So people had to judge them. Imagine this. People had to judge them based on their ideas and their thoughts and their philosophies. Today... 
Not so much. Today are elections, right? We choose leaders. I would say even worse than Samuel, Samuel was trying to choose one. Anyone remember what historians would say swung the 1960 election between Kennedy and Nixon? It was a debate, too. But it wasn't about their words or their philosophies or their thoughts. Nixon, and, and here you see it, Nixon had not yet mastered the idea that television cameras would be a huge part of this new first broadcast debate. And so he just showed up. And he looked pale and white and worried, apparently sweating all the time profusely. And the cameras sent that into your living rooms. Kennedy, here he is four days after the debate, having makeup applied for yet another television appearance. Kennedy, in this interview, actually says, I understood what, Link, what, what Nixon didn't understand, that the images would matter more than the words. But, you say, that was the 1960s. We're a much more educated society now. TV was so new then. The audience was less sophisticated. That's why they were focused on how things look. We're so much more mature and sophisticated. Ladies and gentlemen, the 2016 presidential debate. He's always, he's always calling me Little Marco. And I'll admit, the guy, he's taller than me, he's like 6'2", which is why I don't understand why his hands are the size of someone who's 5'2". Have you seen his hands? They're like this. And you know what they say about men with small hands? You can't trust them. He said I had small hands. Actually, I'm 6'3", not 6'2", but he said I had small hands. They're not small, are they? I never heard, I never heard that one before. I've always had people say, Donald, you have the most beautiful hands. Right? You can't make this stuff up. Right? We're more primitive. <laughs> this is literally what we're doing. So Samuel is, is literally in this story doing exactly what you and I do and, and are still doing. And, and God sees it. And he knows it. Samuel goes, surely this is the one. Look at him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, or for that matter, his hands. For I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. Can I get an amen? The Lord does not look at the things people look at. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. He has never seen anybody the way you see them. You got to really pause and think about that for a little bit. He does not see in people what you and I see. He does not see how they dress, what color their hair is, how successful they are, what political party they belong to, their personal hygiene habits. I mean, think of all the things you look at when you see someone. When you walk into Walmart or when you're walking through the mall. Do you understand the Lord does not look at any of the things that you and I do. He doesn't see waistlines. He doesn't see wallets. He doesn't see fat. He doesn't see thin. He doesn't see rich or poor, blonde or brunette. He doesn't see any of the things you and I see. 
In fact, he tells Samuel what you and I already know. People, this is kind of the but I in this story, but we look at the outward appearance. But I can't ask her out. She would never go out with me. But I can't go to class without makeup because everyone knows all, will know I have pimples. But I can't aspire to be a CEO. I'm only 5'6". I mean, isn't it ironic that the only people we judge more harshly than oftentimes is ourselves? But I'm not rich enough. I'm not successful enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not talented enough. I'm not tall enough. I'm not thin enough. But I look at the outside of others and myself all the time. But the Lord looks at the heart. But the Lord looks at the heart. Now, some of you know this story. It's a beautiful story, powerful imagery, and a killer line right there. But have you ever thought of this verse, not so much as a verse, but more of a command? Did you catch that it's a command? Listen to the language. God tells Samuel, and I think us, do not, do not consider his appearance. It is an imperative. Do not consider it. And why? Well, like all of God's commands, it's for our good. Don't consider his outward, outward appearance. You know why? And some of you know this, because you're going to get fooled. You're going to get tricked. You're going to get played. You're going to get burned. God says, do not consider it. Look at their heart. Now, that sounds like very Christian-y, Right? What does it mean to, to look at the heart? Oh, you know, he's got a good heart. Oh, bless her heart. I mean, what does God mean when he says look, and by his association, we should look at and worry about the heart? Well, for one thing, the, the human heart seemed to be the thing that Jesus was most focused on. In the Gospels, one of the things the writers discerned was that Jesus, because he was God in the flesh, like his father, Jesus could discern people's hearts he would condemn people for their stubborn hearts, or he would notice that people would worship God with their lips, but their hearts were far from him. One writer I came across this week put it this way. He said, in, in Jesus' culture, for the Greeks and the Romans, the great human struggle was between the mind, which they believed was resident in the soul, and the passions, which they believed resided in the body. And so for the Greeks and the Romans, if you wanted to achieve strength and courage and self-control and wisdom, you learned to sublimate the emotions to the dictates of reason. For our culture, and this is like on steroids right now, for modern people, the great, the great struggle is reversed. We believe our deepest feelings are who we really are, and we must not repress or deny any of them. The great human struggle is actually, according to the modern people, modern philosophers, is between the emotions and a repressive society that often stands in the way of self-expression and realization. Now, the Bible, when it talks about the heart, doesn't talk about either of those things. It says the great human struggle happens actually within a single entity, your heart. The main human struggle isn't between the heart and something else, but between forces that are tearing in different directions. The great battle is deciding to what your heart's greatest love, hope, and trust will be directed. There's a war afoot for your heart. Now, to English speakers, we hear that and we go, all right, I know it's not like a coronary thing. It means emotions. 
But the Bible, when it talks about the heart, means it's something more, right? For example, did you know your thinking, the way you think, comes from your heart? Quote, the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. Where do your thoughts come from? They come from your heart. Uh, Proverbs then says, for as he thinks in his heart, because that's where your thoughts come from, your heart, so is he. Eat and drink, he says to you, but his heart is not with you. So not only is our heart the seat of our thoughts, right, then that, those thoughts lead us to where we actually go and who we actually become. The writer of Proverbs is saying, look, the words don't matter, the hearts do. Your heart, our heart, my heart, is where our plans are laid. It's where our directions are cast. Again, Proverbs, to humans belong the plans of the heart, but from the Lord comes the proper answer of the tongue. In their hearts, humans plan their course, but the Lord establishes their steps. You see, when the Scripture talks about God seeing the heart, when, it, when, when the Scriptures are referring to the heart, they are using it as a metaphor the, for the seat of our most basic orientation, our deepest commitments, what we trust the most. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him and he'll make your path straight. Our hearts, what, 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 we, it, what we love and hope in, it, it's what we treasure. It's what captures our imagination. When you fall asleep at night, what's running through your mind, your worries, your concerns, the reflections of your heart, every heart has an inclination, something it's directed to. You get to be my age, it's like the villages in Florida, right? Your heart has to start to have a mind that's directing you. The direction of the heart, it controls everything. Our thinking, our feeling, our decisions, our actions. What we most love, we find reasonable, desirable, and doable. Whatever we cherish in our hearts most, it controls our whole person. No wonder then that Jesus is so concerned about your heart. He was never concerned about your outside actions. That's my, my friend, why God ignores outward matters. He looks supremely at the heart. Here's what Paul told the, the Corinthians. He said, therefore, because they were looking at people and judging their behavior, therefore judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He'll bring to light what is hidden in darkness, and he'll expose the motives of the heart, because that's what God cares about. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. And this is why when you understand what your heart is, this kind of seat of who you are, how stunningly beautiful this truth in Proverbs is. Have you ever caught this one? My son, give me your heart. Give me your heart. And let your eyes delight in my ways. Don't you see what God is saying to Samuel and to you and I? He's like, look. Don't, it's a command, don't be like everybody else in the world who gets distracted by beauty and talent and success and riches. They'll take your eyes off of the heart. None of it ultimately matters. What matters here and now and eternally is what's in the heart. Our obsession with image and images. Is this the right filter? Is it, you know, it, I... I have kids with cell phones, right? I hear the same questions all the time. How's this filter look? Is this grammable? You ever notice nobody takes one picture anymore? 
Like when I was a kid, you took a picture, and then you drove it to Photomat, and you waited a week, and you hoped it was good. And when you looked like I did, it usually wasn't. It came out like that, but I didn't have another one to scroll through. Now, I go to take a picture with my kids, right? Dad, let's get a picture, okay. And I'm like looking around, and then, you know, I see this. You know, this obsession with it, how it looks. Our culture is training us through all of these images of beauty and status to do the exact opposite of what God is saying to do. We've been trained to look at and to notice and care about the external, the external, the external. Nobody says to look at the internal. You know this, you're trained in it too. Okay, I've said this before and you all know it's true. One of your kids comes home and goes, hey, I met a boy and I, he asked me out. What's the first thing you ask? Can I see a picture of him? Right? It's the first thing. Nobody asks, well, you know, tell me about, like, uh, what his focus in life is. You got a picture of him? Yeah, anybody, know, you know who Pierce Brosnan is? Anybody looked up a Pierce Brosnan? I see the same Pierce Brosnan story. Maybe this is because I'm so shallow and they're feeding it to me. But... Uh, do you, do you get the same Pierce Brosnan story all the time that I do? It's about his wife. Pierce Brosnan, he reminds me of a young John Eisman. Very handsome guy. <laughs> Stunningly good looking, right? Really, one of, you know, this is 54 years of straight heterosexuality here, but he's a handsome man, right? Really good looking guy. And his wife was stunningly beautiful when they got married, and his wife is no longer as, by the world, she no longer meets the world standards. And I'm not going to put the picture up because that's just going to add to it. But every Pierce Brosnan article I come across is a picture of him and his not-so-beautiful wife, and they keep asking him the same question. So here's what he replied. Somebody said, have you, have you noticed how much weight your wife put on? He said, she in my eyes is the most beautiful woman in the world. She raised my five children with love. In the past, I already loved her for her personality and not just for her beauty. Now I love her even more. I am very proud of her, and I always try to be worthy of her love. Y'all should be looking for guys like that. And I can't help but wonder how many marriages which would have resulted in, in just beautiful oneness and unity and family and companionship and ministry never took place because when we go to the club or the bar or online or church, we just keep looking for the wrong thing. We keep getting fooled and tricked and burned. And so what does all this mean for us? Well, first I think it's pretty simple. Stop being duped. It's a command. Don't do it. Don't judge people based on their appearances. Look at what God looks at. Look at their heart. Don't ask yourself how hot she is or how tall he is. Stop asking what she looks like or what he does for a living and start searching for what their heart, what does their heart long for? What is at the core of their being? What is it they treasure the most? What do they dream of and hope for? What captures their imagination? What passion controls their lives? What are they living for? 
Gosh, if you're not married yet, I have no better advice for you than that. Second, what does it mean for me and you? Well, Peter said we should be worrying about adorning our hearts, making our hearts more attractive. A couple simple questions here. Ladies, let me ask you this. What would your heart look like if you spent 55 minutes a day working on it? What would your heart look like? Ladies, what would your heart look like if you, you decided you were going to spend over a quarter of, of a million dollars investing in your heart? Right? And part of us, the flesh goes, well, I wouldn't do that. That's silly. Well, that's the problem we find ourselves in. Gentlemen, same question. Can you imagine if you put as much worry and effort into your heart as you do your job and your image and your reputation? Can you imagine if you cared more about your heart than how other people perceive you? How great would your heart be? It's so funny, right? I mean, we're smart people. We know beauty vanishes, youth fades, but we keep investing in a depreciating asset. Springsteen has this haunting line from a song that, that always sticks with me. You'll be fine as long as your pretty face holds out. Then it's going to get pretty cold out. As we saw, the scriptures say your heart sets the course of your life. And so we have to ask our, ourselves, are we becoming more beautiful on the inside? Forget the outside. Forget the outside. Are we becoming less selfish, less envious, less anxious, less sensitive to criticism? And if we aren't, if we aren't, perhaps we aren't investing our time and effort and money and worry in the right places, but in the wrong things. The story concludes this way. Then Jesse called uh, Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel is another son. Uh, but Samuel said, the Lord hasn't chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shammah pass by. But Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are, are these all the sons that you have? And of course, here's Jesse. There's another godly man who's using his human eyes. These are not the only sons he has, but in his mind, these are the only sons fit to be king. And so he answers, well, there's still the youngest one, which in the Hebrew, as I understand it, the word that was used there has got like a, a pejorative nature to it. What Jesse is saying, well, is, I mean, I have the runt. Jesse answered, he's tending the sheep. And Samuel said, send for him. We're not going to sit down until he arrives. And so he sent for him and he brought him in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. And then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. Just a quick observation on this. Notice, you know, when, when you hear this story, you expect David to walk in and be like puny and frail, right? But that's not what the story says. Right? The story says that, that he was uh, fine in appearance, glowing with health, right? David is not weak and ugly. It's an actually an important point in the story. In our culture today, there's been a lot of pushback against body image, and rightfully so. Anybody seen the Dove ads that, that are out with real women, real bodies for the Dove ads? And I get why there's a pushback there, but the problem is... It's not about looks, it's about what you're looking at. Because at the heart of those ads is the exact same problem. Look at me, 
Look at me. I'm beautiful. Don't tell me I'm overweight. Don't tell me I don't measure up. I do. Look at, look at my externals. I'm beautiful too. At its core, it's still sending the wrong message. So Samuel took the horn of oil and he anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. And Samuel then went to Ramah. I can't help but wonder if we actually got our hearts right, if we started worrying about inner beauty and not external adornment, if the Lord would not see fit to have his spirit come powerfully upon us too. But I'm not sure it ever will because we're too focused on what we look like and everybody else looks like. And finally, if you need some inspiration for changing the way you see yourself and others, don't miss seeing Jesus in the man of David. You know, Tim Keller always does this stuff, the, 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 the better Jesus. Because Jesus was born in Bethlehem, the city of David. Jesus, this second child of Bethlehem, who when he too was anointed with the Spirit, he was hunted down, but not by the deposed King Saul, by the deposed ruler of this world, Satan. Jesus, who on the cross was not just forgotten by his father, but was forsaken by his father. On the cross, what we see is somebody who was beautiful beyond bearing. He was glorious beyond description, but he emptied himself of his beauty and he became a servant. Isaiah said he had no beauty that we should desire him. His visage was marred. We couldn't even look at him. It was so ugly. But the psalmist prophesied of that moment, I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It's melted within me. Don't you see the heart of Jesus was melted in order that ours might be mended? He exchanged his beauty for, for our beating, to bear our sins, so that if we would trust in him, you and I could have the only beauty that matters, the only beauty that lasts, beauty in the eyes of God. That's the way he sees you now, as he sees you in him. Friends, somehow when you see that, when you stare long enough at that cross and what Jesus did for you, when you get it deep in your heart, somehow how you look to others is going to seem really unimportant. Friends, heed the command. Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him, because the Lord does not look at things people look at. Don't consider his or hers or yours. People look at the outward appearance. But they can't, but I can't. But the Lord looks at the heart. And may we, with the cross set right before our eyes, with the love of God so visibly displayed for us, and the inner beauty of Jesus so triumphant over his outer visage imputed unto us, may we begin to see our hearts and the hearts of others too. Let's stand and close the song.